Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Magic in the Moon podcast. As always, I'm your host, David. This week, we are taking a brief break from our um, series on a pagan and polytheist dissection of the Bible. Um, we're going to get back to it for sure, but there's so much material, and I don't want this podcast become super like dense with a lot of Bible things, because while it's cool um, and it's interesting to look at that from a pagan and polytheist perspective, um, the heart and soul of magic in the moon is always going to be paganism and witchcraft. So I do want to uh, kind of break up that series into chunks and not have like months and months and months where that's the only thing that I'm talking about. So um, as a fun break from that, this week uh, I'm taking some questions. These came from Instagram uh, and from my email as well. So if you'd like to send questions or if you have topic suggestions or just any feedback at all for the podcast, you can email me at magicinthemoonpodcast at gmail.com. And that's M-A-G-I-C-K and the moon podcast at gmail.com. You can also send me a message on Instagram and you can find me on Instagram as magic underscore and underscore the underscore moon. And again, that's M-A-G-I-C-K. And I will link both of those uh, in the episode description. So getting right into it. Um, first question is advice for a newbie drawn to Hecate. They say that they've been doing some research and they feel like they're meant to be worshiping Hecate, but they don't necessarily know where to get started or what to do. So um, I am not a devotee of Hecate at this time. Um, I definitely had some experiences with her several years ago as I was kind of beginning my uh, journey with witchcraft and things. And um, in a way, I do still acknowledge her. I kind of have a syncretic view of her where I view her as being um, one face out of many of the great Lady of the Moon. I don't necessarily call her by Hecate specifically. I don't work with her in that context. But I'm going to give you some advice um, that you can apply to learning how to worship Hecate or just any deity in general, right? So... Look up their myths, look up their stories, see what historical and like religious texts there are that speak about her. Read the Homeric Hymn to Hecate, where she's talked about extensively. It talks about her many names and titles, her spheres of influence, her powers, um, her lineage, how she was worshipped, who she was worshipped by, um, things like that. And also uh, another good source, I would say, for her in particular is the Homeric Hymn to Demeter. And even though it's chiefly about Demeter, um, Hecate does have a very important role in that story. So I would encourage you to look up her myths um, and also look and see what contemporary worshippers of her are doing. Because I think it's great and important to rely on historical information when we can. But also, it's important that our spirituality and our craft is rooted in the here and the now. So find what people in this day and age are doing that our worshipers of Hecate. How do they experience her? How does she make them uh, make herself known to them? What sort of offerings is she like? What context is she worshipped in? Um, and get different perspectives. Like there's um, a wonderful book called Keeping Her Keys by Cindy Brennan, which I'll link here. She also has a website by the same name. She's a priestess of Hecate. She started an entire tradition of witchcraft built around Hecate. So that's a great resource as far as contemporary stuff. Um, there's also a wonderful organization called the Covenant of Hecate. They approach her in a very specific way, viewing her as the anima mundi, the soul of the world. So uh, that's going to be a very, very specific flavor of devotion to her. But that's another option as well. And also just check around 
you know, forums and things, social media, YouTube, obviously, like I've talked about before, you don't want to just take everything everyone says at face value, use discernment when getting information, but check that stuff out. Um, so familiarize yourself with her myths, her historical worship or contemporary worship. And if you feel like that's something that's interested, uh, that you're interested in, then approach her. Approach her in prayer. Make yourself known to her. Announce in prayer to her that you are seeking her out and that you're giving her honor and see what happens. Okay. Um, next question is about sigil creation. It says, uh, this person, I'm keeping them anonymous. They say, when creating a sigil, can I overlap the letters? Is this appropriate? Um, this depends because there's lots of different ways to make a sigil. Um, one way that I've seen a lot of people do is just to kind of create symbols that have personal meanings to you, almost kind of like you're doodling, but with intention. Um, there's a more traditional way of setting up letters on a grid system. And based on what it is, you'll connect those letters into a pattern. And then, um, you know, after you've removed the vowels and repeated consonants and you mark out the letters that are left on a numerical grid, and then you trace the pattern out and that's your sigil. Um, that is the method that I prefer to use myself. I'm creating my own sigil. And also some things just have their own sigils that are like historically established. Like if you're working with any of the major astrological planets, so, you know, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Mars, Venus, etc. Like they already have very specific sigils that you can just Google. Um, a lot of the times deities have very specific sigils already, like the Venus symbol would apply to Venus and Aphrodite, of course. There's a sigil of Lucifer that's very specific. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's my advice on sigils. You can make your own and totally just have it be unstructured and do what you feel is right intuitively. You can use the grid system where you remove vowels and repeated consonants, then track it on a numerical grid. And then if it's something that's very historically established, like a planetary body, um, a very historically worshipped deity, you can probably find um, sigils that have precedent for that already. The next question says, how do you feel about casting a spell to bring back an X? Um, okay. This kind of falls into the territory of love spells. And I've talked about this before on Magic in the Moon, but it has definitely been kind of a long time. So people's opinions on this differ a lot. And I don't think it's our place to project our personal ethics and moral convictions onto other people. With that being said, for me personally... Um, I don't really like to do love spells. Um, there are certain circumstances in which I would be willing to do them. But in those circumstances, the people that have approached me for it, I give them very, very blatant, very blunt, very direct warnings of like, hey, this might not work at all, or it could work very well, and they might get obsessed with you and it could get dangerous, or... It could work and you might not notice anything, but then you have to live with the fact that they might be with you because of magic and maybe because they don't love you or they don't want to be with you. Um, and I have to make it very clear that like, hey, if you are okay with accepting those consequences and those risks, then I will do it for you. Beyond that, I don't do them. And I certainly don't do them if I'm not asked to and if they're not comfortable with those stipulations. Um my personal take also is that magic cannot create something out of nothing. Like we're witches and we're powerful, but we are not the gods. We cannot make something out of nothing. 
So my opinion too, in the context of love spells is if it works, that person had to have loved you at least a little bit or there wouldn't be anything to work with because with magic, we can nudge and we can encourage and we can push a little bit and we can decrease things that are there, but we can't erase them completely or we can increase something that's there, but we can't create it from nothing. So if the person doesn't love you at all, in my opinion, you could do 20 love spells and it's not going to work because there's nothing to work with. Or if you know, you don't want someone to love you anymore, you can't just make them stop. Um, so I know it's not everyone's opinion. That's totally okay. But that that is what I think about that. So can you do a spell to get an X back? Uh, in theory, yes. Um, I would encourage you to really be thoughtful and think about that and do some divination about it before you do it and be very aware of the potential risks and of the consequences that could arise from that. And also just have the understanding that there are some things that we should not do magically. Not going to say what that is necessarily, because it's not my job to decide what that line is for anyone else, but just be very, very thoughtful and be prepared to accept the consequences of that. Okay. Next question. Can I reuse crystals from a spell jar? Okay. So full disclosure, I think spell jars are overhyped. I'm not saying that no one uses them. I'm not saying that they don't work. Um, but I think social media and especially TikTok has really made spell jars seem much more important and much more common than they actually are. Um, spell jars were not something that I had heard of before TikTok. And I've been doing this for a while, not like a super, super long time, not like decades and stuff, but definitely longer than some people, like several years. So, um, Spell jars, I think, you know, can be helpful depending on how you use them. I think their importance and the ways of using them has been exaggerated a lot. So, like, if you, let's say you wanted to create a spell jar um, for financial abundance, right? So maybe you put in a dollar bill to symbolize just drawing money to you. Maybe you put in some cinnamon for prosperity and let's say, I'll just say citrine um, for financial success. And then you put it, you know, um, to give it some extra power, some extra spice. Let's say you align it with the planetary hour of Jupiter um, and do it on a day that's significant for Jupiter because it's the planet of good fortune and uh, success and that stuff. Um, yeah, I think you can reuse that stuff. I think that you need to be mindful of how you charge that energy and what you're directing it towards and what you're manifesting because you don't want to have that like be super active and then just take the stuff out of the jar. But if you either are done with the spell and you want to move on to something else, or if it, you know, you feel like it worked and you're just done with it, then yeah, just, um, I would say, you know, open the jar, dispose of the ingredients in a way that is ethical and environmentally safe. And then, yeah, I would just cleanse the crystal. However you cleanse things and use it for whatever else. Okay, next question. This person says, does anyone else struggle to continue practicing? They said they've been practicing on and off for about four years, but they lose motivation and feel like they don't have enough time to practice consistently. So here's what I would say. Don't burn yourself out. You know, I think there's this idea, maybe not if it's not even like stated directly, but there's kind of this unspoken 
idea where like, oh, well, if you're a real witch, then you have to do spells every day all the time. You have to do these elaborate rituals every day. You better have something super formal and planned out for every moon phase, um, every, you know, Sabbath or holy day, whatever. And I don't think that's true. And I don't think that it makes you a bad witch not do those things. We all have mundane lives that we have to balance out. Not everything is a spiritual endeavor. We have to go to work. We have to go to school. We have to complete projects and get homework done. We have to pay our bills. We have to, you know, spend time with our loved ones, take care of our houses, um, and just do things that aren't always spiritual things. And that's okay. So don't burn yourself out by trying to do everything at once, by thinking that you have to do all of these things all the time, or thinking that like, you know, you're a failure or you're not serious about witchcraft. You're not always doing something because you don't have to. That's okay. Honestly, my daily practice is very, very minimal. I get up in the morning and, you know, just shower and get dressed and get ready for the day. And then I make um, one very simple offering that I dedicate to all my gods and spirits. And that's it. That's it as far as my daily practice. Um, I will do spells and magical workings if the need arises to but i don't like plan on doing that just for the sake of it if it's just like a regular day or if i don't need something or if i'm not doing something for someone um i do like to plan things for the full moon if i have time but sometimes i don't and that's okay and i don't really worry about that you know i will do specific workings for things if and when the need arises to but beyond that my daily practice is very minimal um, it's just an offering to my gods and spirits at the start of the day. And then I will do, you know, a rosary devotion once a day. And that's kind of it. Um, you know, I'm part of a lineage coven. So we have more structured things we do for our holy days and for the full moon and stuff. So I participate in that, of course. But as far as my like solitary practice, it's very, very minimal. So um, it, it's okay to not be doing things all the time. And if you have to take a break or take a step back or do less than normal because of you know other obligations you have work or school or family things or relationship or if your mental health you know is not permitting you to be as involved and active as you were before that's okay and nothing bad is going to happen to you because of that your gods and spirits aren't going to be mad at you it doesn't make you less of a witch and it's totally okay okay moving on next question This person says they want to know about possibilities for an inexpensive altar. They said, after weeks of being lazy, I've decided to assemble my own altar and I'm low on a budget at the moment. What could I do for a beginner's altar that just is about essentials? And uh, I think it might be there's a typo, I'm not understanding. But basically that they want to have a beginner altar, just the bare bones, minimum essential stuff and they want it to be inexpensive. And this is another, I think, misconception or popular idea about witchcraft that I don't really care for. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of social media. Again, social media is great. I love it. I use it all the time. I think it's helpful for many, many things, including witchcraft. I think it's spread a lot of awareness and education. It's helped people to connect to communities of witches without necessarily being close to them geographically or without outing themselves as witches. Um, the downside though, is I think there's this idea that you have to have this really, really expensive, aesthetically pleasing altar with really expensive statues and a fancy candles and all this, and you don't have to have that. 
if you have the money and you want to, totally great. Um, you know, I have an altar now that's pretty elaborate, but that's because I've built that up over years. You know, it took me a long time to build up relationships with my gods and my spirits and then to save money to do things for them. So yeah, after, you know, a, a period where reciprocity was built up, I would go out and buy nice statues when I could afford them. But, you know, that might be a process of several months or several years. I wasn't just buying super expensive things all at once right at the beginning. And in fact, I would encourage you not to do that because for one thing, especially if you're a beginner, you don't know how your practice is going to change. You might start out and think you need all these tools or you need these specific statues or whatever, but then in a few months or in a couple of years, you might decide that that's not part of your practice anymore, that you don't need those tools, or maybe you don't feel a connection to those deities like you thought that you would, or maybe you do, but you don't relate to those images anymore and you want something different. So slow and steady was really the key here. There's no rush and you can, you don't have to use expensive things. Like if you want candles, you can go to the dollar store and get like $1 pillar candles. That's what I do. I go to the dollar store and I get seven day candles for a dollar. Um, if I'm doing more like Wiccan stuff, I'll get candles just to represent the four quarters. Um, they're a dollar. I will, if I want like specific candles for like Mary or the saints, um, those are often times at the dollar store at Walmart. I'll get them for a dollar, maybe like $2, depending on what they are. Super cheap. If you want decorative stuff, you can get fake flowers at the dollar store, at the craft store. Um, if you want to have something representing the gods, you can get statues if you want. And like I enjoy statues personally. So if I save up and get those if I need to or if I have the money. But if you want to, you can just find an image you like on Google and print it out, put it on the altar. That's free. Um, and if you want to frame it, you can get a frame from the dollar store. So you don't have to get super expensive things. So my advice would be take some time. Don't be in a rush to purchase things. And it's okay to get things that are inexpensive. Um, I think it's cool to support other witchy creators when we can even though it's a little bit more pricey, but sometimes you just have to do what you can afford, and that's okay. Okay. Next question. This person says... Actually, I don't think I'm comfortable answering that. <laughs> um, moving on. Okay. This person says, Are candles beneficial to use while doing a reading? They said they're going to start doing a tarot reading for themselves because they've seen some um, some numerology-related things lately. So they want to do a reading. Um, and they want to know if a candle during the reading will enhance the outcome or change things. So I don't necessarily use candles for readings, especially if it's just like for myself or for someone that I know in real life. Um, if I am doing a reading for like a client for my business, I will use candles, um, because I have a very specific method of using candle magic in those situations to protect myself from negative energies and from other spirits. I don't know that clients might bring with them to those readings. So I do use candles for that. Um, aside from that though, no. 
So if you were just using a candle by yourself for your own reading, I don't think you have to, but I think you can if you want. Like maybe you want the insight of a particular deity or a spirit during that reading and you could have a candle lit for them for that reason. So like if I, like for, I'll use myself as an example. Like um, my tarot practice is dedicated to St. Lucy. So I will have an image of St. Lucy around um, either on the altar, on the table I'm using, or even just in the room when I do readings because my divination is dedicated to her. But if I wanted, let's say, some insight from Santa Muerte in a reading, I would light a candle for her. But if I'm just doing like a general reading for myself or for people I know just because, then I don't like candles or feel the need to really. So that's how I do things. I hope that clears up that answer. Okay, next question. Okay, um, so this person wants to know, they said that they saw a black dog late at night, and is that a sign from a god or a spirit or whatever, what have you? So I've talked about signs before um, in other episodes. My answer to this is going to be kind of how I would answer any question about asking if something's a sign or not. And that is that other people can't really tell you if something was a sign or not. Um, and the reason why is because you have your own relationship with gods and spirits. You have your own internal symbolism that is built up through those relationships, even if you're not aware of them right now. So I could tell you what I think maybe that could mean, but I'm not you. I don't have the same spiritual court that you do. I don't have the same experiences and internal symbolism that you do. So I could give you my opinion or what I think it means, but that doesn't mean it's going to be relevant to you or your life at all. So I don't really recommend trying to get other people to interpret signs for someone else. Um, now, if you're part of a tradition, like if you have a coven, if you're part of a specific group or religion or grove circle, whatever, what have you, where there's a shared like initiatory experience where you're all worshiping the same deities, then I think it can be helpful to ask those people because there's going to be a shared symbolism there amongst you. Like maybe if I go ask my high priestess about something that it might be relevant because she could speak to the same imagery related to the gods of our tradition. But beyond that, I don't really advise doing it. And also not everything is a sign. So I've said this before, but like if it's an animal or something to do with animals, think about how animals behave. Like if I see a rabbit around my house and I think, oh, is this a sign? That's like, whoa, David, hold on a second. It's summer. In the South, there's lots of animals. This is the time where rabbits come out and there's there have babies and stuff. There's a bunch of animals and will be until, you know, like the winter time. So is it really that out of the ordinary to see a rabbit? Probably not. And beyond that, if it's an animal that, you know, is common to where you live or if it is, you know, the seasonal time for when you would see them, take it one step further. How is it behaving? Is it just kind of jumping around, running around like rabbits do? Is that normal? Or are they doing something very out of character? Are they behaving in a way that's abnormal or strange? So always rule out the mundane explanations first, because sometimes a black dog is just a black dog. Now, if you did some sort of petition to Hecate, we'll say, and said that, hey, if you're listening to me or if you'll 
answer this prayer, send me a black dog, and then you immediately see one, that that might be a sign. So it's important to contextualize them in the situations that are relevant. It's important to rule out the mundane explanations first. And I think it's important to not rely on other people to interpret these things for us unless it's relevant, like I said. So that's my answer to the black dog question and also just to any question asking if something is a sign. Okay, moving on. This person wants to know Sorry, I'm, I'm skipping a couple just because they, they're some sort of question about is such and such a sign, things like that. And I feel like I've explained that already in this episode and in several other episodes. So I'm, I'm kind of skipping over things that are overlapping a lot. Okay, this person wants to know how to get into cosmic witchcraft. They said they're trying to get into cosmic witchcraft because they love astrology. And they've been practicing witchcraft without knowing for a few years now. And they want to know if there are any good book recommendations on cosmic witchcraft or good YouTube channels or websites. So um, full disclosure, this is the first time I've heard the term cosmic witchcraft. Um, I know that there's like a trend on social media to say like, oh, what kind of witch are you? Are you a kitchen witch or a sea witch or a cosmic witch, whatever? Um, if those labels resonate with you and help you feel empowered and connected to things, I think that's great. But I do think there's an overemphasis on the need to like label what type of witch we are. And I don't really think that that's necessary. I think we can just be witches and we can just have interests that we have while being witches. Um, with that out of the way, I think if you're interested in astrology, that's great. And I think astrology absolutely has a place in witchcraft. Um, personally, I do work a lot of ceremonial magic that incorporates astrology. So I'm very mindful of the phase of the moon, also what zodiac sign the moon is in. Um, I'm very aware of like planetary alignments, certain transits, um, all sorts of things like that. Like, for example, aligning spells with days of the week based on their planetary associations, I think can be really important. So like if you wanted to do a spell to increase abundance in your life, you could align that with Jupiter, right? So let's say you want to do a spell for financial success, right? Um, well, the day of Jupiter is Thursday, right? So you could say you want to expand good fortune, have good luck and success come to you. So you're going to do the spell on a Thursday because that's the day of Jupiter. But then you could also wait for that auspiciousness to come into play. So you could wait until there's a transit that's beneficial to that. So that's, I would recommend you just look look into astrology in general, learn how to understand what the planets are doing and why, look into what it means when certain planets are in certain zodiac signs, look into what it means when the waning moon is in Sagittarius, look into what it means when Jupiter is opposing Neptune, like look into that stuff so you can understand what's happening in the sky and how it's affecting things here. And that will give you a really practical way to understand how you can incorporate astrology into your magic. Um, another great way is by learning the Kabbalistic tarot, very specific way of learning tarot influenced by Hermeticism and um, one form of Kabbalah where the major arcana cards are linked to 
planetary bodies, and that can be used in your magic. Um, so like the sun is the sun, of course, the moon is the moon, but the star is Aquarius and et cetera, so on. So um, that would be my recommendation for you to learn how to incorporate more astrology into your witchcraft. Okay. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions before we have to wrap it up. Okay. Okay, this person wants to know. Sorry, one second. Okay. Um, I'm going to summarize a little bit. I had to read a little bit here. But basically, this person wants to know um, if anyone has advice on summoning King Paimon. And for those that don't know, he's part of the Lesser Key of Solomon. He's a demon in that tradition um, of the Goetia, stuff like that. So they want to know how to go about interacting with him. Um, first things first, I am not a Solomonic practitioner, and I don't really work with demons in that context. I'm probably not the best person to ask, but from what I do know about it, um, essentially with the Goetia stuff and the Lesser Key of Solomon, you were calling on the power of God, meaning the one God, the Abrahamic God, to bind demons to basically make them do what you want. Um, my personal take is that that's not a very respectful way of engaging with any sort of spirit, and I would probably not approach it like that. Um, but beyond that, I am probably not well-versed enough in that topic to really give you much of an answer. I would encourage you to read The Greater and Lesser Kings of Solomon. Um, there's a subreddit called Demonolatry Practices, and the people there probably would have some better answers for you. Um, but with that being said, that's all I have for you guys this week. Hope you enjoyed your Q&A, and I will see you next week when we get back to our pagan polytheist dissection of the Bible. I will see you then.